Okay. And so if a person is today living openly uh, as a Christian in the Western world, most likely, I'm going to suggest to you that that person is uh, going to face some form of opposition to their faith. You're with me, I'm sure. If a person is, let's say, zealous for Jesus, living openly for Jesus, 21st century world, that person is more than likely at some point or other going to face some hostility. I don't think that that is a particularly uh, controversial statement to, to make, is it? If you were to take uh, living openly, fervently for Jesus at the beginning or the first half of the 20th century, and if you were to compare that to living openly, uh, fervently for Jesus, the early part of the 21st century, wow, what a difference there would be with the rise of other religions in the United Kingdom, with the rise of progressive ideas maybe about sexuality, progressive ideas about gender identity, living openly as a follower of Jesus today in the UK will almost certainly mean that we encounter some opponents and some opposition to our faith. Well, because of that, an absolutely critical matter facing you today, me, critical matter is how you and I are supposed to respond when opposition comes our way. How do we respond if there's hostility to us as Christians? There's a political commentator uh, in the United States, and uh, he is a Catholic bloke, pretty sure. And uh, in these things, he's calling for a dramatic and new approach from the church of God. So this political commentator is saying it's time for the church to jettison uh, these ideas about gentleness. And instead, because the matters that we are engaged with uh, with society, they are so severe that there should be a change and that we should meet the fury of society with a fury of our own. Is he right? Or, or is something else more in keeping with biblical truth? Well, last week, as we began uh, this section of Jesus' teaching, what our Lord did was put before us two ways of life. Do you recall them? Do you remember them? In this context of persecution and opposition, and it is that, isn't it? Do you remember? Blessed are you when people hate you, value, spurn you. In this context of opposition and persecution, Jesus has reminded us of this way of life, the, the way of blessing in the Beatitudes. And then what was it? The way of woes. And so I'm hoping that as we read on today, you can see what our Lord has done. Can you see that the very, I think it's actually a beautiful progression, a continuation in our Lord's thought? Do you recognize it? From putting before us two ways of life, now what Jesus does is shows how those things interact. Doesn't he? Do you see what Jesus does more exactly? He lifts his eyes to his people and he shows us that crucial matter that we need to know. Here, he shows us how we should respond when opposition comes our way. And I, and I want us to do just, just a few things here. 
First thing I, I want us to do is open our Bibles. So if you, if you have taken a, a copy of Scripture with you, please have it open. That's the first thing. Second thing that I would want us to do is to plug ourselves in or uh, buckle ourselves in, whatever you want, because I warn you that where Jesus goes here is incredibly challenging for us. And then the other thing that we're going to do is we're going to ask a few questions this morning of this text. Indeed, we're asking the questions of our Lord. So we've got the Bible open. We've, we've plugged ourselves in. We're all secure with our seatbelts in, uh, and then we'll ask a few questions. So let, let's make a start with this. This is the, the first question I think we need to ask. We can maybe even put it up on the board. To whom is the Christian's love to extend? To whom is the Christian's love uh, to extend? Now, uh, I've just made a couple of comments there. What, what, what are the comments I've made about this section? N number one is that it's important, it's critical, what Jesus says here. The second thing that I've said is that it is challenging, and it will be challenging for us, I, I think, for all of us. But I want to add a third statement here, and I want to suggest to you that actually this portion of Scripture from verse 27 to maybe 35, I want to suggest that it's shocking that as you and I dig into this portion of Scripture and get into it, I think we, you and I, are going to find out that it's shocking. But more than that, I want to suggest as Jesus is speaking, maybe perhaps it is halfway down this mountainside, you'll remember that on this plateau, that this, what he says here, would have been absolutely shocking to his initial audience, his first audience. See, what we have to appreciate is that at the time in the first century world, how you treated the people in your life was really by and large set in stone. So you with me? Like the values that you would have for how you treated the other people in your life, they were kind of fixed as it, as it was thought about in the, the ancient world. So I um, this week, I, in my reading, came across a, a quote, and it was a quote from a pagan philosopher at the time. I think his name is Lysias, but I could have his name completely wrong. Uh, but he spoke to these values, and he said this. So he said, uh, it is established. So you see already that idea, don't you? These are values that were fixed in society. It is established that when it comes to your friends, wait for it, how do you treat your friends? He says, when it comes to your friends, you seek to be of service to your friends. Sound okay, does it, so far? Then Lysias, this pagan philosopher at the time, he says this, but it is established that when it comes to your enemies, that you should seek to do harm to your enemies. Fixed pagan value of the time. You should seek to do harm to your enemies. Now, I think you and I here, what we might like to assume is this. That's the pagan view, but within religious circles, it would have been totally different. That's what we might like. Within the, the people of Israel, it would have been fine. It would be great. Actually, not so much. And what God said in the book of Leviticus, do you remember? God had said, love your neighbor as yourself. 
But by the time that Jesus is speaking here in the first century, I think you know what the rabbis had done with that. They had absolutely butchered that idea, hadn't they? So what had the religious teachers done? They'd done a couple of things with that. Do you know what they'd done? They had lowered the standard there that God had given his people. So what the, the rabbis taught was this. They, they taught, love not, love your neighbor as yourself. But in the first century world, the rabbi would teach, love your neighbor. That's it. It's subtle, but do you see? It's a lowering of the standard. What else did they do? They also brought the boundaries there that God had given and brought them right in because the rabbi would teach this, that loving your neighbor just meant loving your fellow Israelites and the ones who happen to think like you. Do, do you see what they've done? How they butchered that teaching? Now do you see why what Jesus says here would have been absolutely shocking in the first century world? Because what is this? Look at it. What is the banner that flies high at the top of this section? Look at verse 27. What is it that Jesus calls for? Do you see? He says, he says love your enemies. Love your enemies. That the life of Christian discipleship it involves not just abstaining from hatred for your enemies, but the life of discipleship actually involves reaching out in love. To whom? Who? Even to those who oppose you. Reaching out in love even to those who absolutely hate you. Now, I, I can't, what would my mom say? I can't dilly-dally here. I can't linger. We need to move on. All I want to do is just bring to you one suggestion that uh, one author, a Christian author, makes. Now, he says this. Follow it. See what you think. He says, if the follower of Jesus is really going to put Jesus' teaching into practice here, the first thing that we have to do is spend time considering who exactly our opponents are. If we're going to get anywhere with this, we have to think very carefully about who our enemies might be. Now, if we're going to do that, as St. Peter's, I think immediately, if we spend any time with it, we'll see that there's really two spheres that we're dealing with, aren't there? There are Christianity's public opponents, aren't there? You can think about that for a moment. You can think about that this afternoon. You know, the politicians that are advocating particularly unscriptural policies or the lobbyists, right? The lobbyists advocating for particularly sinful ways of life, public opponents, but then, I don't know, what is perhaps more pertinent for you and for me, there are our personal opponents. For some amongst us at St. Peter's in this hall just now, there will be unbelieving family members who are doing everything to obstruct your Christian living. And there will be colleagues at work who just are constantly deriding and nipping away at you because of your faith. And, and there might be, for parents, there might be one of your kids' teachers advocating, advocating things that are so much against God's word. We perhaps, even this afternoon, we need to think about who are these people in our lives and why, why isn't it shocking that we might reach out to them in love? 
So that's the, f- the first question. To whom uh, is the Christian's love to extend? A second, uh, a second heading or a second question that we would ask is this. How? <laughs> how exactly are we supposed to, to, to love these people, these opponents? How do we do that? Um, in the late 1990s, um, a pop group, a music group, I'm going to try not to sound like a really old man when I talk about pop music, but it's just it's not going to work, is it? Uh, in the late 1990s, so I've already sounded like an old man. Uh, the late 1990s, a pop group that I don't particularly like in any way, a group called Massive Attack, they released a single, and it's a single that some of you in the room may at least have, have heard of, and it was a song called Teardrop. Teardrop, okay? The young people blank looks on their faces. Uh, This song went on to sell millions and millions and millions of copies. Um, It was played widely, and it was a song that was covered by an array, a vast array of different sort of artists, ranging from Jose Gonzalez to Newton Faulkner, and even to Gary Barlow of Take That Fame. Now, why on earth am I mentioning Uh, this song. Well, due to its popularity and actually when it was released, what it meant was that lots of people entered into the new millennium singing uh, the opening line uh, from this song from Teardrop. So they go into this new millennium and they sing this, love, love is a verb. Love is a doing word. Love, love is a verb. Love is a doing word. Maybe not particularly profound, but certainly what it is that you and I have to wrestle with here uh, before this portion of Scripture. Because you understand, don't you, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus is not calling for some just little vague (laughs) emotion. He really is calling St. Peter's to action here. And, and, and so how do we do this? If we are to love our enemy, like how does our life change? What do we do from, from this point? This is what I want you to do. If you can take scripture in your hands, all I will do is I will direct you to three things that Jesus gives you for free here. Jesus gives you three things to answer that question. How do I respond? How, how do I obey you? He gives you three things. So first one, If you look at verse 27 and 28, notice that Jesus gives you imperatives. So we're asking, how do I love? Now, see if you can pick them out, these imperatives. Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, here we go, love. There's an imperative, isn't it? Love your enemies. Next one, do good. Do good to those who hate you. Where do we go next? We've got another one, don't we? Verse 28, bless, bless those who curse you. And then the the last one here, the imperative is pray. Now, now, I think everyone in here, we all recognize that those are imperatives. I wonder, what I'd love you to notice and just to wrestle with for a moment is to see that there is a very subtle, I think real though, progression. Do you not agree? First, there is to be, we're to love. There, There is to be a softening of our hearts towards our enemy. Where does it go from teaching how it builds to actual action, doesn't it? Do good, then it builds again. What's blessing these people? That's actually going to that really difficult step of being willing to 
say, to speak love to our opponents. And then where does it all end? Do you see? We pray. Do you you see how that's a, a building up to interceding even for these people? There's a progression here. Now that, I think, is far reaching. And so I think we need to pause. We need to ask ourselves, are we obedient here? Are we, are we doing this? As you may be later on today, as you consider who, who these opponents are in your lives and who is opposing you for your faith, I wonder, reflect on that. Can you ask, am I constantly ready to serve that person, that opponent, in even the, the littlest way? And, and am I willing and, and ready to speak into their life with words, gentle words of love, words of encouragement to that opponent? Am I writing their name down on my prayer list? Am I bringing them regularly to God at the throne of grace in in prayer? What did I warn you? I warned you it was challenging for us. So Jesus gives us imperatives. The, The second thing is that he gives us illustrations as well. Because what did he say there? He said, do good. Do good to those who hate you. Do good. But would you agree with me when I say this to you? That actually here, Jesus goes to quite unusual lengths to unpack what that means for us. Even for Jesus, he goes to unusual lengths. Just have a look at verses 29 and 30. What you'll see in 29 and 30 are four, they're quite brief illustrations, but they're illustrations of doing good to our opponents. Now, what they range from what? from not withholding a tunic if somebody comes and snatches our cloak from us, ranging from that to not demanding things back from people when they snatch and when they, they take it away. Now, maybe it's just me, but I think it would be marvelous if we had time to dig into all four of those illustrations of what it means to do good to an enemy. I'd love that. I think that would be great and helpful. Helpful. My life, we don't have time. I do think, though, The first one that he gives us here, we ought to, we have to, just linger on for a moment. If you look at the beginning of verse 29, do you see it? What does it mean to to love your enemy? Uh, To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Do do you see, Christian friend, why we ought to just linger on that for for a moment? I think that idea over the centuries even over the decades, has been dangerously misapplied. I wonder if you can see how and why it's been misapplied. And Jesus says here, when they hit you, when they strike you in the cheek, turn the other cheek. People have taken that and suggested that if you are abused, people in the church suggest that if you've been attacked, that you turn the other cheek, you yield that's all you do. You just accept that, that is your faith. As though here Jesus is in, in some ways forbidding the idea of self-defense. And I, I want you to hear that that is absolutely not what Jesus is doing. Now, we have to appreciate this, that the action that is in view at this point had a particular connotation in the ancient world. That's essential for us to understand. So striking on the cheek 
especially with the back of the hand. That was something that was used in religious settings as a religious insult. Do you see what that means? Jesus here is not forbidding carp not forbidding any forms of self-defense. No, what's he saying to his people in this context of persecution? He's saying to us, encouraging us, be willing even to endure humiliation as you seek to follow me, humiliation for his name's sake. So he gives us imperatives, illustrations. The last, the third thing he gives us for free is an instruction, because if you do look at verse 31, I think you'll all see something familiar. I hope it's familiar to you. I'm sure it is familiar to you. Because in verse 31, do you notice he gives us what, what has been called and come to known as the golden rule? Isn't it? You see, in order to summarize the things that he's been saying, to bring it all together, Jesus implores his people, don't just not hate. What does he do? He implores us in the strongest possible terms, in the most positive possible way. He implores us to act towards our enemies in the loving way that we would want to be treated. There is so much food for thought. I just, I just want to ask you this, though, please. I want you to chew over this, but not just for your own sake. I want to ask you, as a congregation, to chew over this for the sake of the children of this church. Now, can you see it? Like, okay, we face opposition. Do you face opposition? Maybe we should be if we're living openly for Jesus Christ. Can I tell you this for nothing? All of those little ones that have gone out there, they are going to grow up and they're going to grow up in in this society with more pressure on them than we have had. There's a greater likelihood that those children that have gone through there, there's a greater likelihood that they are going to face hostility. They're going to face opposition. So I appeal to the parents, of course, but the grandparents, the aunts and the uncles Should we not take this section of scripture and really quickly, even in the next week, let's bring it into the children's lives and teach them so that they will know for God's glory, love, love is a verb. Love is a doing word. Third question. So to whom are we? We're supposed to love our enemies. How? Jesus has given us these three things to show us. The third question, I suppose, is why? Uh, The question is, what is the purpose, the underlying purpose of demonstrating this love towards our enemies? Now, if you missed last Sunday, uh, and a few of you did, um, some are visiting this morning. If you weren't here, as I said earlier, we looked at two different ways of life. One that is lived in dependence, on God and the other, a self-seeking life. Now, as I went away from that portion of Scripture after last Sunday, I think the, the thing that struck me most was the, was the contrast that Jesus drew up between the eventual fate of those two groups of people. Surely, if you were here, you remember that. I mean, to, to those who live without reference to God in this life, Jesus himself promised in the end there would be want, spiritual famine. 
But then, to the other side, to those who, just by God's grace alone, nothing in them, just by grace, they've recognized spiritual poverty and they've run to Jesus Christ. Did you remember? What a contrast. Remember what it was? Blessing. Blessing. Indescribable blessing for them. It was the contrast. Well, it's something similar we find here in the text, don't we? What Jesus does here, he sets up before us Now, there's three contrasts. It's contrast between what he's calling for from us and what he sees in the world. He sets up these three contrasts just to make one particular point. One point. Now, I'm going to make your life easy. I'm going to give the game away. What is this point that Jesus is making through the contrast? Listen, hear it. What Jesus is calling for is such a standard of love from us that it will absolutely astound the world around us. Jesus is calling for a love from you, a love for your enemy that is so great and it's so different to everybody else that it is just going to blow people's minds. Now, if you do this, if you just glance at the contrast, I think you'll see that point come out. Do it with me. Verse 32. There's only three contrasts. Really quickly, what's the first one? He says, if you love those who love you. Like, what real benefit is that? Do you see the contrast? He's saying, unlike the world, and the world only seems to love those people who are just closest to it. Unlike that, we've got to love and love extensively. It's the first contrast. Then move on, verse 33. Oh, look at this. Look at this contrast. And if you do good to those who do good to you, did you see? What's he saying? He's saying, if you just live like the world lives, what's the motto that the world lives by? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Jesus is saying, no, no, we can't. That's not what it's called for. We have to love and love without a motive of reciprocity. And then what's the last contrast with the world? Do you see in verse 34? And if you, Jesus says to you, Christian friend, if you lend to those from whom you just expect to receive back, what good is that? What benefit is that? Did you see? Unlike the world that just seems to love when it is safe. We're to be different. We're to love in a risky way. We're to love in a costly way. We're to love in a sacrificial way. You can see it. Jesus wants us to astound people. He wants us to love our enemies to such an extent. It's just blowing people's minds. Why? So that that love testifies to God's grace. He wants us to love in such a dramatic way that the people in Dundee and Broughty Ferry, they have to look on at us and they have to conclude, this can only be by the power of God. This can only be by, by God's grace. Friends, I think we, we have to look at ourselves very closely. I think we have to ask, in the way that I love my opponents, am I astounding? around me? Are the members of St. Peter's Free Church, are we known for how extensively we love our opponents? I'm not sure. I think this pushes us out of here and into prayer in a place where we repent of our sin, in a place where we, we ask God, plead with God, make us like that. I want to be like that. I want to love like that so that I can testify to you 
and to your grace. And then most briefly, last question of all, who is it that we are following after with this sort of love? And I am going to tread lightly. I'm going to tread really carefully because there is definitely a danger that I can offend people with what I'm about to say. Because I want to ask you, as you have grown older, could it be said that you have started to resemble your mum? <laughs> or could it be said of you that as you've grown older, you have started to resemble your dad? Is that possible? <clears throat> when we're young, we say that it will never, ever, ever happen. I will never be like my mum. I will never be like my dad. And then years later, what happens? Years later, we say something, we hear ourselves say it, and then we realize, wait a minute, that's exactly what my mom would have said in that circumstance. That's exactly what my dad would have said there. Or perhaps it is that we find a photograph, and it's a photograph from 35 years ago, and we look at the photograph, and what do we realize? I'm like, ah, ah. you know, look at your pain, that's what I look like now. Uh, well, perhaps, truth be told, for, for many of us, that is not the disaster that we make it out to be, right? And it is that idea that we close with, the idea of family resemblance. I want you to look at verse 35 with me. We close with these things. Jesus states that should we do this, so should we love our opponents, he says this, we will be sons of the Most High. Think we, do we need to just be careful? What does that not mean? Of course, Jesus is not saying if we love our enemy, then somehow we will earn a new status. And we've suddenly become children of God. We know as our status is by grace alone in Christ. What is he saying here? He's saying, should we love our enemies, we will be following after the God that we love. If we love, isn't that a glorious thought? Like if we love our opponents and our enemies, we're evidencing our salvation. We are providing a demonstration that God's spirit really is there within us if we love our opponents, that we're demonstrating that we're part of his family. Do you see here, there's something of a family resemblance. Now perhaps there's some in the room this morning or tuning in online who are maybe new to churches like this or new to the gospel and new to Christianity and trying to find more and investigating more. And, and maybe if that's you, you're just wondering about what Jesus is saying here about God, that God loved his, his enemies. Now, what does Jesus say about God here? He says that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, and maybe if you're new to Christianity, you're wondering about that, and I long for you this morning to see and understand, not only is that true, but God, Almighty God, has actually proven that element of his character. He has proven his love for his enemy in the most delightful and beautiful and remarkable way. Follow it. What has God done Though man has rebelled against God, mankind in opposition and hating God, what's God done? God has sent the Son, He sent the rain over mankind equally, but what else? Listen to the phrase, for 
his opponents, God has sent his only son for his opponents. That in the gospel of God, our creator has revealed that central to his character is an enemy-loving heart. Right at the heart of God, enemy-loving heart. And then you think about God the Son, the one who is the image of the invisible God. And what has he done for his people? And then all of the details of this very text flood into your mind. What has Jesus Christ done? Though he was despised and he was hated and he had his tunic ripped from him, all things taken from him, though he was struck on the cheek, though he's hated and despised, what does, how does he respond? First Peter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And it was more than that, wasn't it? Because then comes the cross. Then comes Golgotha. And what happens? He is put there by his enemies. He is there for his enemies. And what does he cry out? There he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. What do we see but love in Jesus, love for his enemies? Friend, for the Christian, we have, believe it, accept it, we have here such incentive to take this section of Scripture and take it really seriously. If you, Christian friend, love your enemy, you get to follow after the God that you do long to honor. But for any who are yet to trust in Jesus Christ, what a reminder you are given here of the beauty, the glory, and the kindness of God. Though you are in enmity, though you are by your sinful nature opposed to God, wow, God stands ready just now to love you. He stands ready to accept you and all by the person and the work of his son. I, I, I hope, I pray you see it. And I pray that you run to Jesus Christ. For do you know what Paul tells us about Christ? He says, Christ has reconciled his people to God. He's done it by his death. And then Paul adds this. And he's done all that while we were enemies and enemies of him. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray.